1: Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy
2: birthday, generation there. Anthropocene. See.
3: happy birthday, birthday
2: to you. you. Let's try it one more time, okay? Generation Anthropocene.
1: 4.6 billion.
0: The Earth forms.
1: Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Hermian Triassic. 251 million.
2: 90% of species
1: die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million.
0: Meteor kills the dinosaurs.
1: 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000.
0: Agricultural
1: 250.
0: revolution.
3: 250.
1: Industrial revolution.
2: 60. With Great animals. acceleration.
1: The Anthropocene.
2: Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Mike Osborne. I'm Miles Traer.
0: And I'm Leslie Chang. Today, we are kicking off a brand new season of stories and conversations about planetary change. And we're super excited because this season marks the five-year anniversary Number of five. our show. Five yes, years. it's our birthday. So we're going to be trying something special this season. Um, Miles, can you tell people what they have to look forward to?
3: Absolutely. So we're still having a mixed-format style show. And the big addition is that we're going to be doing two releases a week as opposed to the normal one. So Every Tuesday and Thursday this season, you can expect a story from us. Tuesdays will be a little bit richer, more produced. Thursdays will continue with our long tradition of long-form interviews, and you'll just be able to hear from all of the awesome people that we've talked to.
2: Yeah. I'm just going to throw out real quick that we're going to try this, and we'll <laughs> it <all> works, and <laughs> Managing I think expectations. It. Yeah, exactly. We're going to do it for at least a little while, um, but Yes.
0: Yeah, we're going to do it for at least a month. And at then, least a month. And then and we'll Probably
2: see. for the whole season.
0: Yeah. But probably hopefully for the for next the whole 10 season. weeks or a yeah. couple
2: months or so. Yeah.
0: yeah. We've been collecting content for a long time now, it feels like. It's been like six months or something where we've been collecting stories and interviews. And I think it's also worth mentioning that we've had a lot of students get involved in the past six months. Um, we were lucky enough to teach a course here at Stanford and um, be able to meet a bunch of students. So we're really excited to feature everyone's work on this upcoming season.
2: Excellent. Yeah. I- Actually, can I say one other thing about that? Yeah. So I think, you know, we've tried to uh, add a little bit more information on our website about how this whole podcast runs, how we do Generation Anthropocene and what a university based podcast looks like, because I think it's sort of a unique model for podcasts Mm -hmm. in general. So uh, right now we are at a place where the future of this show is really, really uncertain. And we're going to try and expand on this model we've developed. But if there's one thing you can do right now to help us out, it's just get the word out. Tell people, tell your friends, social media, dig into our archives, visit our website, and contact us. Uh, Best way to get in touch is genanthropocene
3: at gmail.com. That's G-E-N-anthropocene at gmail.com.
0: And if you want to learn more, you can also check out our website. It's www.genanthro.com. You can read about the history of the show, and there's some more ideas there on how you might get involved. So we're going to kick off this season with an interview that Mike did a few weeks ago with Jonathan Foley. He's the director of the California Academy of Sciences. It's this science and sustainability and future organization oriented, uh, I was going to say podcast, it's a museum that (laughs) lives in Golden Gate Park. That's us. We're 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 the podcast, we are the museum. That's us.
2: He does the museum part.
0: Um, So Mike, do you want to give us a little prep on who Foley is? Sure. I mean,
2: so he had a long and very uh, successful career as a scientist uh, for a number of years. He's been at the California Academy of Sciences for about three years. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him is that you know we sort of live in a time right now where For some people, science is under attack, right? And uh, especially earth sciences and, and, and environmental sciences. And so, we, you know, I guess the three of us really kind of got to thinking about, like, the role of u- museums in our lives. Like, what is the sort of, like, cultural context for that? And Jonathan Foley is really, really eloquent on this point. And you'll hear some of that in the interview. The other reason I wanted to talk to him is that he's also a big proponent of this March for Science that, uh, if you're listening to this on the day it drops, Friday, April 21st, mm-hmm. um, the March for Science is tomorrow in cities all across America. Uh, so it felt appropriate to have him on today.
0: All right, well, let's get to it.
1: I'm John Foley. I'm the director of the California Academy of Sciences, and I've been a scientist working on global environmental issues for over 20 years. So,
2: you know, before the interview, we started talking a little bit about uh, how you came to have this position, uh, what your journey to... You know, executive director of the Cal Academy was. Maybe you can tell us the story there.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, so, I, so I run a museum now, and up until a couple of years ago, I'd been a college professor. I've been, you know, teaching and doing scientific research on big environmental issues like, you know, food and water and climate change and all this scary, fun, amazing stuff. But a couple of years ago, I get a call from a headhunter saying, "Hey, uh, we'd like you to apply to be the director of the California Academy of Sciences, this museum in San Francisco." And I just said, oh God, I don't want to run a museum. That sounds kind of old and dusty I'm not interested. I just hung up the phone. But then some other people called me up and said, no, 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 you don't understand. Uh, we want to turn this into uh, a new kind of institution that's focusing on sustainability. We want to blow out our programs outside the walls of the museum and become a kind of a global institution. And I said, well, that's pretty cool, but I, I don't want a new job, but I'd love to talk to you about it. So we talked and you know, kind of one thing led to another and I get a job offer. They insisted I come out and visit with my family. So I came out here and went to the museum and I'd never been in it before, and I came secretly. I just bought tickets, the staff had no idea who I was, and I was walking around this magnificent museum with my daughters and my wife. And about an hour into the visit, and and, you know, recall, I was gonna turn down this job. I was flat out, no way am I gonna do this. But about an hour into the visit, I'm just like, oh my God, look at this amazing coral reef. And wow, look at this planetarium. And I kept, the wheels started clicking and I just kept on imagining all this amazing stuff you could do here. And my oldest daughter, who had just turned 18, poked me on the shoulder and said, dad, I'm like, yeah. She says, dad, if you don't take this job, I'm going to kick your ass. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, "What, what? Oh, because you like it so much? She said, no, dad, I haven't seen you this happy before. But also, and she was very articulate in explaining this to me, she says, you're kind of frustrated by universities, how they're still kind of an ivory tower and that all this work happens inside and doesn't get to the real world. Here, people from the real real world are here every day engaging in these programs. And this would be the most you know open and transparent and kind of truly democratic place to talk about science you can imagine. And I just looked at her in bewilderment and amazement. I'm like, oh my God, you're right. And I looked at my wife and she's nodding like, geez, you have to take this job. So I totally took this job on kind of a dare from my kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I, I call it my midlife crisis job. And yeah. I, mean, I guess I should have just bought a Camaro. right? right. Um, but I'm running a museum now. But the funny thing is after doing it for a few months, I started to realize intellectually why it made sense. Um, and especially for things around you know, the environment or the Anthropocene, this kind of moment we're in right now. And I guess it's because of three facts about museums that are kind of amazing. One is uh, museums in America are freaking huge. About almost Mm. a billion people will walk into an American museum this year.
2: And is that, when you say that, is that's is that all kinds of museums, yeah, art oh museums, yeah, yeah, yeah. natural history. All of them, know? yeah,
1: yeah, all of them combined. So, yeah. yeah, right, a fraction of them, maybe, I don't know, a quarter, let's say, I don't really know, yeah. are science, natural history, and related things. Most of them are art or history or cultural institutions. But just think of that, though. A billion people go to some kind of museum a year hmm. just in this country alone. That's more than all of the sports stadiums and all the theme parks in the country combined. Huh. So that's, that gives me a little bit of hope for some reason. I love that fact. So first of all, museums are really big footprints. Uh, Here at our Cal Academy, we see about 2 million people in the museum and in direct community programming we do right in the Bay Area. And we're the largest one in our part of the world. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of students, (laughs) you know, 2 million or so. Um, That's pretty cool. The second thing I learned, though, was even more astonishing, was that museums are probably the most trusted institution left in America. Wow we get approval ratings somewhere in the 85 to 90% range between and across republicans to democrats it doesn't matter there's no difference
2: yeah so there's something about the the, the way museums are structured, you know, in in terms of their organization and bureaucracy uh, but but also in terms of the sort of, like, cultural consciousness the the psychology of of average Americans that, that like, remains a a sort of safe and important place.
1: It it seems that way, yeah. It's kind of cool. So people generally trust their local museums and cultural institutions in general. Science museums, oh, everybody goes. You bring your kids, you bring your grandma, you know, it's very friendly and you get to look at penguins and see, you know, uh, coral reefs and dinosaurs. I'm like, who doesn't like that stuff? Come on. Yeah. So it's uh they're big and they're trusted. And the third thing I learned, which is astonishing, is that most of the science learning in America, what we learn about science, especially around the environment, happens in informal settings. In fact, about 70% of what Americans learn about scientific topics does not happen in classrooms. It happens on the radio, podcast, uh, Science Friday and the radio, Neil deGrasse Tyson's right. the whole empire of this stuff himself. Museums, actually museums are the largest part place where that happens, wow. but also parks. And Americans have an incredibly rich informal science learning universe where uh, museums are kind of a cornerstone of that. So I was kind of thinking about my life saying, wow, if I wanna make a difference in the world, it's pretty cool to be at a place that's big, and trusted, and has a big outsized role in shaping what Americans think about science, when you
2: said that you know a lot of our sort of science learning is in the kind of informal setting, that strikes me as interesting because I think that on the other side of that equation, I feel like there's a lot of kids out there, um, and even college students and people in general who also have a kind of fear of science. Yeah, you know, yeah, who are, yeah, don't think they can do it, can't pull it
1: off. No, That's a shame.
2: Yeah, and but yeah. but 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 an obvious sort of like you know. Curiosity to, to want to have the knowledge. so I, I guess what does it tell you that a lot of our science learning is informal? I mean what does that, yeah. what does that say to you?
1: Well, I, I think it's two indictments of our science education universe in America. One is um, I think of science education in the. US. built on kind of three legs of the stool that you know builds science education and literacy in America. One would be our K12 system which arguably is the worst in the industrialized world. Our students keep on ranking near the bottom on scientific literacy and, the, and when they're young. Mm-hmm. That's a huge problem. We have to do better at that. But ironically, when you get to higher education, colleges and universities, community colleges, which do a lot of the the heavy lifting in this, um, from liberal arts to big R1 universities, the whole gamut, we're probably the best in the world in terms of higher education. Kids from all over the world compete to try to go to our top universities. And then we have the excellent, probably the best in the world also in informal science, the best museums, the best planetariums, the best science celebrities, the best parks (laughs) and summer camps, you name it. We have a rich constellation of stuff in informal science. So I think between those three legs of the stool, two are incredibly strong. One's kind of rickety right now. Now, the thing you asked the other question is why are people scared of science? Uh, I hate to say this as an endeavor, not necessarily
2: as a body of knowledge, but as a like, I'm not sure I could do that.
1: Yeah. You know, this is going to piss off my colleagues, if any of you are listening, um, but I think the worst thing to happen to science is probably the profession of scientist. Um, like, especially if you get into advanced science training as a graduate student, if, if you go through a master's and PhD program in science, and it didn't, like, beat the creativity utterly out of you and make you wonder what the hell you're doing with your life at least five times, you didn't do it right. Yeah, preacher. It, it. yeah. It's <laughs> like, oh my god, it's a miserable, soul-sucking experience, and and when you become a tenure-track professor, you realize you're spending most of your time chasing grants and citations and on committee. I mean, if anybody ever told a 12 year old what the average life of a university scientist is like—they would never do it. Yeah. This is why people like Adam Savage from MythBusters, or you know Sylvia Earle, uh, or you know Neil deGrasse Tyson are so important because they still offer the hope of like science is about wonder, it's about examining the universe and our place in it, and serving the world with a nobler purpose. But sometimes the profession of science we get on this treadmill of you know it's the grants to get the publications, to get the grants, to get the you know. And so I, I, I tell scientists, and especially like grad students who you know inevitably all end up in my office in tears one day, <laughs> wondering what do I do with my life? Yeah. You know, and I was that student too once. That's why I'm doing this interview, by the way. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we've all been on that, yeah. that, that seat. Um, but as I say, you know, hey. Remember your inner twelve-year-old. Every yeah. scientist I've ever met has an inner eight-year-old or twelve-year-old who is like kind of a wonder junkie, who was you know built a telescope when they were a kid, or you know plopped around ponds and tide pools looking for weird critters. You know, just embrace that person and become that person, and don't let the other stuff scare you away. Everybody is a scientist a little bit, and if we if we get the the dogma and the rigor of scientific profession kind of out of the way a little bit and let people be curiosity driven and all that. I think every American's kind of a scientist and we had a like relish in that and do that better.
2: Well, there's also a category of science that, uh, that gets politicized or has become politicized that I think is, is also, I, I worry about what that means for, uh, what kind of personalities it'll attract. Will it attract the, yeah. the, 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 students, and, um, you know, the next generation of, of great climate thinkers, Or are they going to be just scared off by the tenor of the conversation um, and and the polarization around it, and the fact that they got to go out there and beat piñatas?
1: Yeah, a little bit. It's kind of. But let's get something out of the way first. Like scientists are like really (laughs) goofy about this issue. Science is always political. Uh, Politics is how we solve problems. As a civilization, it's like we—it's about public discourse. It's you know—it's the affairs of the city. It's what the root word of politics means in Greek, mm. and it just means how do you conduct yourselves as, as a society? How do you talk about things? How do you solve problems? And given that so many of our problems are dealing with science and technology and engineering and medicine all the time, then inevitably science and politics become linked, and let's not shy away from that. Now. Th- That doesn't mean become partisan or polarizing or becoming you know voicing your personal political opinions about something you know nothing about professionally like nobody cares what my opinion on pro-choice pro-life is and that's not my role to say that but if i want to talk about climate policy or the environment like yeah i should be as a scientist in fact i think it's your moral duty to say you know this is how what i know is relevant to the larger conversation the the rest of the world's having. And you know what, we're the only profession in the world that's so screwed up, we have a hard time talking about that. Like economists have no problem getting involved in policy conversations, anthropologists have no problem with that, Uh, every other expertise in the world is engaged in policy and public discourse and politics. I think scientists, somehow we got, I don't know, nervous about it, it's weird and we shouldn't be. In fact, I think we're violating our oaths as Good human beings, if we will, or i a, a sense of ethics I would have, especially in this moment, I think we should be politically engaged, but I don't mean campaign politics, I mean in public discourse, yeah. Things like, even just like this, just talking to folks that's political,
2: do you know I agree i mean I, I have mixed feelings about this to be honest yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean and I think I think part of it is that um' well, nuance here yeah i mean I, I well, I think you know being involved in politics and being you know as as every IPCC scientist I've ever talked to says, policy relevant but not policy prescriptive. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. there's all kinds of language out there to, to, of, of drawing. They put lines. that on a
1: cool little business card. Everybody has to carry. Yeah. That.
2: No, <laughs> I tattooed on their eyelids is yeah, my exactly. understanding. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but there, but there, there is a part of me that that does feel like having some buffer, and insulation, and and an ability to deliberate. You know, strive for that. Unachievable goal of objectivity um, is sort of like um, it, 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 that is oh, hey, sort right. of sacred space, right? Oh, and, no, that, no, no, and that no, 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 and yeah, that yeah. needs to not be tread upon too much. But I also I also believe in transparency, and I also believe in scientists not being shy about sharing their you know representation of knowledge.
1: Yeah, no, I, we're on the same page. I mean, what I think if there were a Hippocratic oath of science, to me it'd be like you know to first the data be true. You know, Mm. like, you know, let the data drive what you think rather than what you think drive the interpretation of the data. So, you know, and and always be careful of your assumptions and, you know, be willing to admit you are wrong. And, you know, the idea of the scientific method, like, well, here's my initial assumption. Let's rigorously and vigorously attack it and, you know, uh, interrogate it and assume for the moment it's probably wrong. Uh, No other profession does that very well. So I think uh, science and law are probably the two most kind of transparent and iterative self-correcting institutions we've ever come up with. We put out an idea, it's interrogated by the larger community, and if it's a bad idea, it goes away. And I think that iteration towards the truth that science does is absolutely sacrosanct. I agree with that completely. But to do that, what I'm saying is not, I don't want politics to influence that process. What I want is the process to influence politics. Mm. So I think science needs to engage in political discourse as a, you know, hey, this is what we know. This is how we know it. And could this be helpful to you, the rest of the world? Like, you know, maybe we try to insulate ourselves from the human world influencing the way we see the data of the universe and how it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to the extent possible, we should be hyper-vigilant about our cultural baggage influencing the way we see the universe. But then once we do learn something, or think we learn something, bottling it up and saying i don't want to be political and not talking about it and we just lock ourselves in the ivory dungeon
2: yeah
1: like no that's screwed up you know we got to be shouting from the rooftops what we know but then it maybe it's more of a you know engage in one direction and then be carefully circumspective in the other uh um, yeah. But anyway, that's, that's the thing we got to wrestle with as a community, but we've got to be relevant. I, I mean, it's tough times for this,
2: right? Oh, I mean, obviously, I mean, post-truth, alternative facts, whatever term you want to use to describe the discrediting of, of large areas of science by, you know, the most powerful uh, offices of the, of the land um yeah. I, I think that like you know there's a lot of soul searching going on of like how do we chart through these waters and keep science as a process and as a as a strategy towards truth and and as something that's deeply interwoven in democracy how mm-hmm. do we maintain all of that you know in 2017 uh do you have any thoughts on that
1: uh, i think <laughs> about that a lot um and i think science is failing at this badly Um, We think this is a battle about facts. It's not. It's about a narrative. And we're not good at that. Um, You know, If the other side, in quotes, whatever that is, let's imagine for the moment, um, just purely hypothetically, imagine there's a large industry in the world that really doesn't want to have action on climate change. Just speaking hypothetically. Hypothetically, sure. Purely hypothetical. Uh, Imagine that's the case. And you're gonna lose, they're gonna lose the battle on the science. Like is climate change real or not? They're gonna lose that battle because obviously it's real. The laws of physics, you know, tell us this is happening. Yeah. We know this. So they can't win that one. But they can win the war of hearts, not the war of facts. And so what they do, and this happens all the time, is to paint scientist in the scientific community as something a little bit alien. That they're them. They're the liberal elites in the ivory tower, in places like Berkeley and Stanford and Harvard, that are not everyday Americans, and everyday. Taking Ameri- tax dollars. Yeah, they the don't drive here. a pickup truck. They're no. not like you. And so there's, I think there's a deliberate wedge being driven. If, if you can't win on the facts, you win on the you win on the um, cultural landscape and the mm-hmm. battlefield there by making uh, scientists not relatable, they're kind of elites, or maybe they're corrupt, maybe they're, you know, they're in the world, new world, I mean, you kind giving of- Giving them a narrative, right, yeah. right, and, and, yeah. and, and defining mm-hmm. what that
2: narrative is, and what the motivations of the people involved in that
1: are. Yeah, and, and it's, well, it's like the whole merchants of doubt thing, too. Right. You can't win the war on facts to just throw smoke in people's eyes, and you know, dust in their eyes, so you confuse them a little bit, and paint the scientists as unrelatable. Scientists get up in the morning just like everybody else. They drive their kids to school, they worry about their mortgage, they figure out how their kids can get to soccer, and they have the added benefit of working for the rest of us every day, at least a lot of public-serving scientists, and then some getting like death threats every day or you know, getting attacked by their president or by members of Congress and called a liar. Most scientists are dedicating their lives to helping the larger public uh, good. Yeah. And they're getting attacked for it. I think if most folks out there in America understood that, they'd be cheering scientists, not vilifying them. And scientists have done a bad job of relating to people. I think they're, well, we're, we're kind of a nerdy bunch. Sure. But I don't think we've done a very good job of being relatable or telling our stories. We kind of feel afraid to do that. Yeah, I know that sounds kind of goofy, like you know. No, but I think there's a human narrative that we're I think losing.
2: It, I think it's really true. I mean, I think it actually, in a way, it's links back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the way, uh, you know, some people. I, I'll, I'll say personally, and I, I don't think I'm alone here, that my aversion to doing any science, you know, as a, when I was a student, um, my my fear of it was that I didn't want to be a nerd. You know, yeah, I yeah. I also think that uh, th- that that there is a, a, a um, well, I don't know. There's there's some emotional baggage with uh, with with some of the people who grow up to be scientists, and uh, and I and I, I like the idea of of recasting the narrative as uh, as one of underdogs. Sometimes I wonder a little bit, though, especially like. With what we're going through now with risk of, you know, massive funding cuts to NASA, to the EPA, to NSF, to all manner of, of federally, federally funded scientific programs, if uh, we haven't gotten a little bit um, kind of are taking for granted just how many benefits – Science delivers to -to day-to-day life, you know, that we – let me put it this way. I'm not sure that everybody who turns on their tap water and doesn't worry about how much lead is in there or goes outside and breathes clean air Mm -hmm. is really all that conscious and aware of the infrastructure and endeavor and money and knowledge that went into guaranteeing that those things would be true. If we haven't just gotten a little cozy.
1: Well I think I think there's two issues here personally but uh, one you nailed it uh, absolutely I agree Is uh, especially things like the EPA or NOAA you know these are the folks who you know keep our water clean make sure the soils aren't contaminated got lead out of gasoline and you know helped improve american lives and health enormously but NOAA you know that provides you know storm forecast weather forecast warnings of tsunamis I'm like people are going to die super because of this useful budget. information yeah. life saving information yes yeah. let's not You know, let's be very clear here. People will die because of these budget cuts. You know, period. Especially to things like, you know, USGS, uh, NOAA, EPA. I mean, these mission-directed agencies. It's absolutely clear. And vulnerable people, the most vulnerable, will die. You know, this is that simple. This is what we have to say. This is truth. But, on the other hand, I think scientists, too, we... um, I worry about the broader cuts to scientific research. Of course, as a scientist, very, very much. I worry also a little bit about how scientists react to it. Uh, sometimes I think we come off, again, That are we relatable or not? Like, instead of complaining about like, oh, my grants are being cut, or tenure is getting hard, and like most Americans cannot relate to the idea of getting a grant from the government. Yeah. You know? Nobody gets a check, you send your check to Washington, not the other way around, for most Americans. So, you know, it comes off as kind of tone deaf mm. when academics compl- seem to be complaining about how hard their lives are. Compared to average Americans, who don't have health insurance, who might have gotten laid off and their towns are dying because their industries are moving away. I think we have to remember how other folks are feeling right now. And don't ask, i mean, paraphrasing Kennedy here, do not ask what America can do for scientists. Instead, show and tell people what science can do for all Americans. And that's where the value proposition is. This is like, hey, if you cut NIH funding, this means you cut NIH funding by 20%, there's 20% fewer people working on the cures for cancer. There's 20% less chance we're gonna find the cure for asthma or diabetes, and simple math, and that matters to you. Uh, Same thing with NSF or DOE or whatever, like eliminating research in renewable energy, eliminating ARPA-E from the DOE budget. That means there are whole industries and jobs that will never happen in America because of that budget cut. I think we need to be careful how we frame this conversation to really engage where the rest of Americans are, not just where scientists are.
2: You know, I so I I, I connect with a lot of that, and I and I really I think the um, the message about how we frame this and and recognizing sort of you know the unique structure of of the job uh, is really really important. I do think that. My mind immediately goes Mm -hmm. to uh, when it comes to the environmental sciences, especially when it comes to clean air, clean water and especially climate change, that the sort of, you know, ability to articulate the benefit of how science informed policy can benefit you know, society at large is really tough because I don't think you go outside. I mean, you know, this is this is not a newsflash, but you don't go outside and smell less carbon dioxide, <laughs> right? You know, that, that there's not an immediate emotion, um, physical, and, and and easily graspable connection with with the value being delivered. We're going to feel global warming, but I don't think that there's one day when we wake up and say it's a global warming day,
3: no, right? It's no. it's
2: this slow burn into it, and that and that the inability to have a you know, directly observable experience mm-hmm. with the the planet that didn't warm as much and the planet that warmed more, and and being able to compare those realities makes this especially hard.
1: Yeah, that, that is true. Um, um, the 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 fact that you know the slower time scales and the you know the fact that it's kind of like you know loading the dice kind of metaphor of like, well, there's going to be severe weather. Are we just getting a little bit more of it due to climate change, et cetera? Um, Yeah, absolutely, that's a really tough sell for, you know, you have to have a longer conversation about that. Uh, So that's important. But also, you know, it's kind of funny, I think we're deeply wired individuals to, um, you know, it's kind of funny for all of human history and existence, we've, our narratives across every culture, we put the gods in the sky. That was the place that could not change. That was the realm of of the supernatural, not us. And so the idea that we can change the sky of blows people's minds, yeah. but we are. I like to point out that like uh, the the entire lower atmosphere, the thing we call you know the troposphere, is only about ten kilometers th- six miles, and you're in the stratosphere. You're kind of into outer space more or less, you know, right? And that lower six miles of the atmosphere is all of our water, all of our oxygen, ultimately all of our food, by the way, because CO two, the beginning of photosynthesis starts there too, mm. and all of our weather, our climate is in six miles of air.
2: It's thin film.
1: Yeah, nothing. And you know, I point out to people in San Francisco, like, "Hey, San Francisco is only seven miles across. If you drive from you know Ocean Beach to the Embarcadero, you may feel like you've gone into outer space. We just went across town, right. <laughs> and, uh, or if you drive to Berkeley, you feel like you're in outer you're space. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, but um, but if you drove straight up seven miles, you'd have made a big freaking difference in your environment. So the atmosphere, you know, the problem with talking about climate change boils down to we're short." <laughs> uh, and you know, we think seven miles up is infinite, but seven miles laterally is nothing. So it's like, you know, look up, the air is actually thinner than you think. We definitely are changing it and we're changing everything. We know that, but it, it's something wired in our DNA. I think it makes us think the sky can't change. And it doesn't help that it's an invisible gas, you know.
2: (laughs) I mean, this is, you know, you talk about some of the, this is why I glabbed onto the term the Anthropocene, right? Because one of of the um, provocative things about it is that it puts, you know, humanity on par with forces that, Historically, have been in the domain of the gods, yeah, right? Geologic yeah. forces, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but collectively, we, we exert that kind of power. And I mean, I think that that it's 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 more complicated than that. It's you know who's in the we and all, there's all that stuff. Yeah, but yeah, but but ultimately, I think um, that that's that's an idea that I I I, I can't let go of. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so okay, hmm. wow. Okay, we've gone we've gone in, under the sky. Let's let's come back <laughs> down to earth. Uh, I think uh, I think I really. Um, I'm curious how all of this is factoring into your vision for museums as, as sacred places for informal learning about science. What would you, if you could shape a vision for museums you know, in America and around the world, what do they do? What should they
1: do? Our number one job as a science museum may surprise you. It's about changing culture. It's not about scientific discovery, it's not about formal education, it's not about pedagogy, it's about culture. And our number one impact is when somebody comes in here and sees a magnificent exhibit about coral reefs. And I can take a Bernie Sanders voter or a Donald Trump voter, it doesn't matter, and walk them through our coral reef exhibit or our tropical rainforest. I can take them to these incredible natural wonders, and everybody has an immediate emotional affinity to awe and wonder. And so you take anybody to uh, see a redwood tree, or go watching uh, whales off the coast of California, or to go to the Grand Canyon, everybody has this moment of awe and wonder. Uh, It doesn't matter what party you vote for, or what you think about climate change, you're there, boom. So you created this moment where you can have a conversation. So what we do is we create moments of awe and wonder and beauty around things like corals or rainforest or California whales or, or glaciers wichers. or ice ages yeah. or whatever yeah, yeah exactly something beautiful and uh, you can appreciate it with awe and wonder so we want when we want to get into somebody's head we first go through their hearts and then when you when I found the best ambassador for a climate change conversation is a scuba diver Inside our coral reef tank, talking to you through a microphone about the beauty of the coral reef, and that while in many parts of the world, the oceans are getting warmer and these reefs are bleaching.
2: Is that an actual exhibit?
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we have the world's largest indoor coral reef in this building. It's 25 feet deep, it's a quarter million gallons. We actually grew all the corals in house. Um, But in terms of just the education part of a museum, I think museums are a place of awe and wonder and beauty. And whether it's an art museum or a science museum, and they're about reigniting a cultural conversation, and that's where you bring people back. Yeah. If you wanna f- talk to people about climate change, you don't start with, I wanna talk to you about climate change and policy. They're gonna just shut down immediately. They don't wanna hear it anymore. Yeah. People right now in America are so anxious right now. The national zeitgeist is people are just freaked out. A third of Americans are saying actually right now that it's like 36% of Americans right now are so anxious, it's affecting their health. People aren't sleeping well. Opiate use has never been higher. Alcohol consumption has never been higher. People are really freaking stressed out. And if you show them another picture of a collapsing iceberg, you're not helping them. But if you show them instead, hey, here are some hopeful ideas. Here's something beautiful. Here's something awe-inspiring. And here's somebody who's fixing a problem. Here's a hopeful idea around like renewable energy or a better form of agriculture or something like that. I think you can win people back.
2: I love that. The central. So when you say you know our mission is to change culture. I mean it really is. Begin. Let's start. Let's start first by introducing some awe into the situation because it's all around us and we ought to see it. Yeah. And let's make that. Let's surface that. Let's let's. Yeah. And let's have that in in our minds and then from there let's talk.
1: Well, this museum, I want to have like two fronts of the culture change that we push on. One is, you know, reconnecting people to the wonders of nature, just kind of a, you know- Which is so easily lost. Yeah, especially in a highly urbanized, over-programmed, busy culture, where we're all looking at smartphones all day long. We kind of lose the magnificence and wonder of the natural world. We should all be looking at the stars. We should be walking through the redwoods. And I mean, my God, you know, look at the world around us. It's magnificent and blows our freaking mind if we just open our eyes. So I love that we do that here and other great institutions do that too. And that that's really important to reconnect people back to the natural world mm. a little bit, just a little. And it has huge benefits to people too. Um, finding that, in fact, you know, a lot of our mental health is dictated by our environment. If you walk through a forest, you're gonna uh, have lower blood pressure, you're gonna have different serotonin levels, your cognitive function goes up, your blood pressure goes down. You know, we know that there's good neuroscience to say we we have a nature deficit disorder in America right now. So that's really important. But on the sustainability side, on tackling things like climate change and food and water. I think we have a hope deficit, too. And and so that's the other front I'd like us to push on is showing a vision of the world that is better than today, where we make it. We figured out how to make an energy system that works and doesn't destroy the planet. We figure out how to make a food system that feeds everybody equitably, but doesn't destroy our biodiversity or our climate. And we figure out a way to make water truly resilient and sustainable forever and share it with nature. Hmm. We All that's at our fingertips. We know this is possible, but if we can't articulate a vision of that future, we can't get there, um, that we avert dangerous climate change. Uh, maybe we graze badly by, it, but we aver- avert the worst of it and we rebuild the planet where we can still have biodiversity and thriving people and we can live well and live well for future generations at the same time. I know we can do that, but we're not hearing that. We're hearing doom and gloom and ho- hopelessness and despair. So I, I think that could reconnect people to awe and wonder of nature and a hopeful vision of the future. I just got to believe that that's maybe the beginnings of how we get there. And um, it's weird as a scientist to say my job is really about culture now. Yeah. uh, At the end of the day, it trumps everything else. Culture trumps facts. It trumps strategy every time. And uh, if we don't get this part right, we're never going to get the rest right. Uh, Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. John
2: Foley, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you for sitting down.
1: Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me up.
3: That's it for this episode of Generation Anthropocene. Thanks to Jonathan Foley and to the California Academy of Sciences. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode, and we have lots of people to thank.
0: This season of Gen Anthro is made possible with support from Stanford Earth and Pam Matson, as well as Stanford's Office of the Vice Provost for Teaching and Learning. Thank you to John Mitchell, Beth McCullough, and Wes Troy of the VPTL team.
2: Thanks also to the Office of the Vice Provost of Undergraduate Education and Rebecca Katz, as well as the Haas Center Cardinal Course Program, including Sarah Truby and Luke Terra.
0: Jen Anthro is also supported by Worldview Stanford. Thank you to the whole Worldview team, including Isha Salian and Megan Che.
3: Taylor Kubota of Stanford News wrote an article about our five-year anniversary. We'll link to it in our show notes. So thank you to Taylor, as well as Amy Adams and the Stanford Communications team.
2: Our show is produced by the three of us, Miles Traer, Leslie Chang, and me, Mike Osborne. And we're also excited to have Jackson Roach on the team as a producer this year. Thanks, as always, to Tom Hiddin.
0: You can find us online at www.jenanthro.com. Thank you, Julie Sherry, for your hard work on the new website. It looks awesome. You can listen to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and lots of other places. And you can also find us on Facebook as well as on Twitter at Jen Anthropocene. See you next Tuesday. Can you do that? Happy no. birthday
2: to you. Okay, we're gonna try one more How time. How about Jen Anthro? Okay, Duncan, can you say Happy birthday, dear Jen Anthro? No. There, okay, please. Happy birthday, dear Ed I just did it.